Jeff was arrested. It's good. Let me ask you a really unfair question. It's a serious question, but it's an unfair one a little bit. Who is God? Seriously. You don't have to answer out loud. I'm just asking you to think about it. Who is God? What comes to mind when I ask that question? Not, not all that, the right answers that you think that you're supposed to, to be saying. What, what automatically pops into your mind when I ask the question, who is God? Uh, an American pastor and a theologian in the middle of last century, you might have heard his name, A.W. Tozer, he made this comment. He said, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It's a pretty big statement to make, isn't it? What comes into mind, what pops into mind, not the things that you're meant to think, but the things that actually you do think, what pops into mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Because when we, when we think about God and whatever our conception of him might be, when we think about God, what we're actually thinking about is what is ultimate. What's ultimately right? What's ultimately true? Who am I ultimately? What is life all about ultimately? What is right? What is wrong? What is good? What is evil? How am I best to live? How am I to think about one another? Who is God? What we think about God fundamentally orients us in this world. R.C. Sproul, and I don't know why these guys do this, A.W. Tozer, R.C. Sproul. Matt Johnson's already started calling me J.C. Nagel, um, which is kind of fun. Um, so R.C. Sproul, so he's a Christian commentator, theologian. I think he passed away a couple of years ago. Um, wouldn't necessarily agree with everything that he, he might have to say, but, but, but this is really good. So he was in uh, an, an interview, I think it was an interview for a Christian magazine, and he was asked this question by the interviewer. The question was, R.C. Sproul, what is the greatest spiritual need in the world today? And Sproul responded, he said, the greatest spiritual need in people's lives today is to discover the true identity of God. And I think he's right, isn't it? Because I think people who would reject God do so on the basis of, of a picture of God that's probably not correct. Otherwise, they would give him a second chance, right? I think if people generally had a, a good grasp, a true grasp of who this God really is, then I actually think this world would be a very, very different place. Sproul was, was then asked this follow-up question. What then is the greatest spiritual need in the lives of church people? What do you think his answer was? 
was the same. The greatest need in church people's lives today is to discover the true identity of God. If believers really understood the character and, and the personality and the nature of God, it would revolutionise their lives. And what Sproul is saying is that our, our ideas about God within the church and within the, the, the evangelical Western Protestant tradition of the, of the church, at least, they're off. And they're off to, to, to such a degree that a genuine understanding of who he is and what he is like would revolutionise our lives. And so then Tozer writes that our idea of God corresponds as nearly as possible to the true being of God is of immense importance to us. Last week we got to the end of John chapter 18 and then we started into John chapter 19 and, and we read about the trial, the sentencing, the flogging of Jesus. The, the high priests had accused him of blasphemy. They had sentenced him to death. And then it was the Roman governor Pilate um, who, who kind of unwillingly, it seemed, he approved and, and ordered Jesus' execution by crucifixion. And crucifixion was a, was a mode of execution that was reserved for enemies of the state. And I reminded us as we entered into, the, into that story, that familiar story, that we would do so with, with the rest of John's gospel ringing in our ears. That we don't read it as a disconnected little vignette separate from the rest of the story, that we would pay attention to this ongoing strife that was taking place between Jesus and, and the Pharisees with the religious institution, um, who it seemed had gotten their understanding of God very, very wrong. I encouraged us that if we hold a view that the Father was, was causing, that he was manipulating, that he was somehow contriving the event on the cross, my encouragement was to consider an alternative that actually holds humanity responsible for the treason of the cross, not God. And the book of Acts is very, very clear on this. Also, I challenged the, the idea that somehow the Father was acting outside of the Son, separately to the Son, pouring out his wrath on Jesus, rather than seeing Father and Son pitted against each other, as punisher and punished, instead we might see on the cross the unified, the indivisible, self-sacrificial character of Father, Son and Spirit. That we might glimpse, as Paul claims, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. And so this week as we come to the, to, to the cross, my hope is that, that we might be open to, to God revealing something new and something awesome to us about himself. And as we explore, we would, we would keep the rest of John's gospel in mind, that we, that we would not let humanity off the hook for Jesus' death and that we would remember that the Son is the exact representation of God's being. And so with that, we'll, we'll read our text. But let me pray first. So, Father, we do ask that by your spirit within us, that you would testify, that you would bear witness to who you are, so, so that we might grow in some accuracy of our understanding of who you are and of what you are like. 
of what it is that you ultimately want and what it is that you are doing in history and what it is that you have called us into participation with, with you. Bear witness within us. We, we approach this text today. We approach the cross with all humility. And we ask that we might get a glimpse of you. In Jesus' name. Today we're reading from John chapter 19. We're starting uh, uh, at verse 16 and through to verse 27. Uh, and the words are not going to be on the screen. And so I'm going to ask that you would... Uh, that you would open or turn on your Bibles or whatever it is that you are doing. John 19, 16 to 27. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. Uh, the ESV is a formal equivalent translation, which means that it is desiring to translate kind of word for word um, rather than thought for thought. Um, so it's quite an accurate translation, though sometimes it can get a little bit, a little bit tricky, but today's passage is pretty straightforward. Verse 19, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an, an inscription and put it on the cross and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. Isn't that interesting? So that all the nations could read. And so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And so in John's account of the crucifixion, this, this motif of king, this is the one that John seems to be uh, honing in on here. This is the primary motif in, in John's gospel account and his account of, of the trial and, and of of Jesus' execution. Jesus is the king. He is the true king. He is the king of the Jews. He is the Messiah. And we're going to come back and explore that in a minute. But this king-messiah motif, of course, is not, is not the only one. We also know that Jesus is the Passover lamb. And as the Passover lamb, we're, we're reminded of the entire Exodus story, rescued from, from bondage and and uh, and. And the, the angel of death passes over the Israelite nation, saved from death. And he is also the true high priest. He is not a high priest in, in the Levitical order like, like Caiaphas. Rather, Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. It is a higher order of high priest. And Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And get this, this is cool. The gift of sacrifice that Melchizedek brings in Genesis 14 is not the blood of a lamb, is not the blood of a goat, but it is bread and wine. Jesus, as the high priest on the cross, is the perfect mediator. He is the ultimate representative of all humanity to God and of God to all humanity. 
And if we were to look at Luke's gospel at the, right at this point, right when the worst has been done, the rebellion of humanity is given its full and is given its terminal expression, the death of the Son of God, the, the true king is assured. It was right at this point that Jesus, the high priest, the mediator of all humanity, interceded on our behalf and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So in the same way that our guilt is mediated through the false high priest Caiaphas, the fullness of human sin placed on Jesus on the the cross, now our absolution is secured by the mediation of the true high priest Jesus Christ. Ultimate transgression mediated through through Caiaphas and ultimate restoration mediated through the high priest Jesus Christ. Now I double checked this this week with a, with a Jewish Christian scholar and he, he heartily assured me that this is right. He had grown up, his, his mother, um, a, a Jew, was labelled a Jesus killer. And so this is one of those things that, that ran deeply in their family, this accusation of, of being the murderer's of Jesus, and to understand that through Caiaphas, all of humanity is being mediated here, is a very, very welcome way of understanding what takes place on the cross. And so, while the King, the High Priest, the Lamb, the Son, the I Am, is experiencing this cumulative rebellion of all of humanity in full agreement with the Father, the same breath that spoke creation into existence the one to whom all authority has been given, declares, forgive them. Verse 23. Grab that out there, Steve. (laughs) When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic, But the tunic was seamless, woven into one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This this was to fulfil the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and from my clothing they cast lots. So the the scripture reading is referring to to Psalm 22. And if you read the crucifixion account in, in Matthew and in Mark, you will remember Jesus' cry, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so this is Psalm 22. It is a psalm of David. And although David is writing about himself, it is a prophetic psalm. It is a, Christ, it is a Christology looking forward to Jesus. And Bill's going to come and he is going to read Psalm 22 for us. It's a good chunk of scripture. And I just ask that we would hear it with Jesus and the cross in mind. Thanks, Bill. I was reading in the book of Nehemiah during the week and when they returned from captivity to Jerusalem, uh, Ezra the scribe read the book of the law and he went from dawn until midday. Now this reading is nowhere near as long as that. But uh, may we 
uh, allow God to speak to us uh, through this word as he indeed spoke to the people in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes amongst them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouths of the lions. Save me from the horns of wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. 
before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. He has done it. So the soldiers did these things. Verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. So you, you imagine Mary. Not Mary, his sister Mary. Not Mary Magdalene Mary, but Mary Mary. <laughs> imagine Mary. A couple of weeks ago, leading into this time, looking at the, the trial and, and flogging and, and execution, uh, I watched The Passion again. And I don't think I've seen that for about 15 years. And I, and I think last time I watched it, you're kind of overcome by the spectacle of it. And this time that I watched it, it was very, very different and I, and I was affected in a, in a really different way. And one of the things that, that grabbed me is the way that Mel Gibson had depicted um, Mary, Jesus' mother, as being present through that trial as much as she could, through the flogging, there as Jesus carried his cross, there as his hands and feet were nailed to it. She was there as the cross was lifted up. And when all else is stripped away that we know is true, there's a mother and her boy. And it was just the humanity of that, watching her son, who knew, she knew was innocent. Woman, behold your son. Gunai is the word. It's the same word you remember that Jesus used um, right back at the, uh, the wedding in Cana. Woman, what, what business is that uh, to you and I? And it sounds like this really derogatory term to us, but it's actually quite an honorific term. It's, it, it's, it's one of honour, but it doesn't mean mother. It's actually wife. And there was a theme of that right back at the wedding of, of, of Cana. What's he doing? Calling his mother wife. But Mary was the first believer. She was, she was the first one to believe that here is the Messiah before he was, he was even born. And so she, she was like the first member of the church, the body of Christ, the bride 
of Christ. And so here is this whole new family order. Mary, the mother of God. Mary, the mother of the church. Mary, the bride of Christ. And John, the brother of Christ. And I know that we, we look at Pentecost and we say, there is the birth of the church. But I kind of just wonder, he, is, it, is it right here? Jesus establishes this new family order. And so who is this on the cross? You just look at the sign. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And we have these other motifs of of priest and Passover lamb and son of man and, and human son. And all of these are true and they all help us to get some fuller idea of not only who Jesus is, but what is going on on the cross. But this theme, this motif that that John hones in on is that Jesus is the king. He is the Messiah. He is the promised king. And now he is crowned. And according to John, this is the gospel. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, is king. This was the focus of of John's account of the entire trial and indeed why Pilate ultimately handed him over for execution. Back in verse 14, Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king! And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the high priest said, We have no king but Caesar. So in the same way that we see Caiaphas as the false high priest, the false representative, now we see Pilate as the false king or the false representative of the false king. And so how ironic that the representative of the false king performs the coronation of the true king. But take a look at this true king. This is the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. This is the one that Israel has been looking forward to for centuries. There are between three and 400 prophecies and references to this Messiah in the Old Testament. The theme of the Messiah is the red thread that runs through the whole story. He is the Son of Man. In Daniel 7, he was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. He is the Prince of Peace from Isaiah 9. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest upon his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. But look at him. What kind of king is this? From Isaiah 53, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. 
Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Who is this crushed and lowly king? Paul writes in Philippians 2, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so what we see on the cross is the true nature of this king. This is no anomaly. And a matter of, as a matter of course, this is the very nature of God. What we read in Philippians 2 is that, is that the true and the essential character of God to take on the quality of a servant. And of course, Jesus' whole life testifies to this truth. In Jesus who is the exact representation of the Father, the cross displays the character of the King. One word for this, and we've spoken about this briefly before, but one, one word for this is, is cruciformity. And it means exactly what it sounds like, to be cruciform. Father, Son and Spirit, indivisibly cruciform. Self-sacrificing. Kenotic or kenosis is another word that we've used and it's, it's another term for this self-emptying and that is the idea here in this, in this passage in Philippians that he emptied himself. He made himself nothing. Why? Because he is in very nature God. Michael Gorman in in a fantastic but difficult book called Cruciformity. He says, God, we, we must now say, is essentially canotic and indeed essentially cruciform. Kenosis, therefore, does not mean Christ's emptying himself of his divinity or anything else of that matter, but rather Christ exercising his divinity. Christ's divinity is on full display as he represents and resembles God, the one who self-empties. What we see on the cross is the highest self-revelation of this God. The cross is the revelation of the self-giving, co-suffering nature of God who is love. And we must allow the character of the cross to inform any notion we have of the character of God. Now the cross is an incredibly deep and it's a complex and it's a multifaceted thing and no one has their heads around it fully. But if we get it fundamentally wrong, then we get God wrong. And if we get God wrong, we get the story wrong. The cross is truly the lens through which we see the character of God and the thrust of his entire story and our invitation to be part of that story. 
we are going to celebrate communion together this morning. And so those who are, who are organising that, can I ask that you would get that ready? And in this meal, we're going to be celebrating our union with this God and our union with one another mediated through Christ. And as we do that, as we share this meal together, ask this question, who is God? What comes to mind? What comes to mind when we think of this God? And this matters because we become what we worship. What we revere, we resemble. That's not me saying that. That's Greg Beale. That's much too clever for me. What we revere, we resemble. God help us. So where do we start? Where do we start in calibrating, recalibrating our image of God? We start with the cross. We start with the cruciform one, Father, Son and Spirit. Jesus and his disciples sat down at the table together in the upper room to celebrate Passover. Jesus knew full well what that evening and what that next day would bring. He took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it and he broke it into pieces He gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood which is poured out as sacrifice for you. On the cross is the character of the king and in this meal is the culture of his kingdom. As the citizens of this kingdom, we will be be known by this self-sacrificing flesh and blood resemblance of the king. Love in the same way that we have been loved. We forgive in the same way that we have been forgiven. We pick up our cross of self-emptying and we follow him clumsily and imperfectly into our days and into our weeks and into our homes and into our classrooms and into our workplaces and neighbourhoods. And we reveal the culture of this kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. When we share in this meal together. So take your time and you'll be served. And when everybody has been served, then we will come together and we will sing again.